Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, this is the third of our conversations on the skills of historical thinking, and the subject is sourcing. It's a term invented by Sam Weinberg, patron saint of this podcast, whom you can listen to in episode 100, and it refers to the act of identifying sources, contextualizing, and assessing documents for bias, reliability, relevance, and point of view. With me to discuss sourcing is Leah Shopko. She is professor of history at Indiana University in Bloomington, and the author of a new book, The Saint and the Count. It's an exciting book because it's almost a new genre, combining both scholarship, uh, historical scholarship, in this particular case about the High Middle Ages in Anglo-Norman England and France, as well as a guide to the act of reading and understanding a document. Leah Shopko, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks, Al. It's great to be here. So I've been, uh, this was a delightful book. But it is, uh, shall I repeat myself? It's like a new genre. Um, you created something very wonderful and different. Um, and I think you're going to have to explain, uh, give us the elevator pitch on what it is. And how the heck did you convince the University of Toronto Press to publish this? Because this is like so new, there must have been some like resistance. If there wasn't, praise be upon their heads. Well, we'll start with the praise be upon their heads, because in fact, from the start, they were unbelievably enthusiastic about this project. I spoke to Natalie Fingerhead, the editor at AHA, and uh, sent her a sample chapter and a prospectus, and she replied to me overnight, send materials. So, um, So they liked it a lot. What I was trying to do is to address a problem that people who are novices and reading history have when they read history books. And that is the surface of those books is really smooth and the nature of what's in them is not entirely clear to readers. Readers think, oh, I'm telling this story, I'm reading this story, it's factual. Um, This author is just telling me what he or she or they have found. But in fact, um, history writing is highly constructed and it's not well understood. So the purpose of this book is to help demystify some of those processes, um, to decode what it is that we historians do so that people understand what we're doing. If we listen to the national conversation, for instance, we hear all these accusations of revisionism. Of course we revise history. It's in its nature. Mm-hmm. So it's um, something I learned from our mutual friend, Lyndall Calder, was the whole concept of the think aloud. And then I started thinking, oh, yeah, I can do that in class when I'm doing a document. That's why I often think that the best modern technology is the document camera. And so I put a document up and I sort of talk out loud about what I'm thinking as I come to a new document. This whole book is sort of that. Yeah. So let's let's first let's situate the 
document first? And how did you come across it? How did you decide on this document? Okay, well, I'm a, I am a medievalist. So the document in question is a saint's life. It's the life of St. Vitalis of Savigny, who died in 1122. I came across it precisely because of the scene that gives the book its name, a scene in which the saint administers a penitential beating to the count because the count has beaten his own wife. Um, and I always look for those places, as I think, say, as the song goes, things that make you go, huh? When you, when you see them, because it's such a striking story. Um, and so that was how I, I found this document. Um, and I often work with saints' lives. As medievalists, we have to. But they're really, to use Lendl's favorite terms, they're dodgy sources. They, you know, they aren't quite history. They aren't quite fiction. Um, what do you do with them? They say what they say. So part of the purpose of the book is to help students see how you can dig into even really pretty dodgy sources by asking certain kinds of questions and thinking about certain kinds of problems. What's so cool is that you went for one of the... Okay, so I, I to reveal my cards. I have an MA in Medieval Studies, so Saints' Lives are our friends. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I've been reading them since I was just a child. You know, uh, but um, they are nothing confuses an undergraduate new to medieval history more than a saint's life. And you have a, a lovely overheard conversation <laughs> between undergraduates. Mm -hmm. But what's and they're hard sources, but it's like in some ways it's you chose the hardest source, which I love. Um, I've discovered that sometimes beginning a class, even in, in American history with the hardest source it's like the best, it's like sort of like throwing people into the deep end of the pool, mm -hmm. you know, as long as you're there to like pull them out, they start drowning, but it's not the deep end of the pool. It's just a source, but mm -hmm. it's really cool that you began with the dodgiest of sources. And I guess that was intentional. I mean, in addition to the fact that you work with them all the time, that's just bread and butter for a medieval historian. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I work with narratives. So some of my other work is on historical writing. Um, and I, I was drawn to the Middle Ages because I love these sources. But you have to make them speak. And sometimes they are not, sometimes they're quite reticent. So you have to kind of grab them and shake them to get them to tell us the kinds of things we would like to know. And they don't always answer, but a lot of the time they do. Could you describe um, at this point a little bit of the structure that you came up with for the book? Um, there's a, it's a very, when we had Scott Newstock on talking about his book, How to Think Like Shakespeare, Princeton did a wonderful typographical job on that book. Um, mm -hmm. And Toronto did a wonderful typographical job too, because uh, there are a lot of bold faced things. It's obviously, it's a teaching text. Did mm -hmm. you envision that from the beginning? Was that part of the collaboration between, between you and Toronto or how did that work out? So um, what is bold faced in the text are terms that appear in the glossary. Um, and it was not actually my, originally my idea. So the other thing that students envision is they, they envision historians working by themselves, you know, shut in their rooms. And it was actually um, responses from readers who said, well, you know, my students won't know this term. 
Um, so I went through and I tried to figure out all the terms that were going to cause problems. And then I have a uh, early 20 something daughter who is a plant biologist who went through and read it and asked questions, very bright, but doesn't know much about the middle ages. Really the perfect, uh, the perfect test audience. They're, they're the best. Audience. Yeah. So, so that was, that's the, what that is doing there. Um, and I've tried also, the other thing that I try to do in the book is to bring up into the text things that are often in the notes, because students do not read notes. Um, so, for instance, if I am referring to the work of an author, I'll put their name in the text. This is who I'm working with, just to make students, readers, aware that I'm having this conversation. It's not that I'm all-knowing or omniscient, but I'm drawing on the work of other people. Um, and I also define terms of art, which cause students tremendous problems. As you probably know, the word pri words primary source are just so difficult for students because when we use the word primary in ordinary language, that's not the way we use it. Yeah, it's a term I, yeah. of art the way we use it. And yeah. so they need to be aware that in all disciplines, not just history, that there are terms of art and they have to know exactly how they're being used. The classic one for medievalists, of course, is realism and philosophy, which doesn't mean contact with the real world, but means that there's this world of ideas that exists independent. Yeah. In my in my 18th century world, it's liberal. Ah, indeed, yeah. yes, right. same problem. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, it, it's um, you know, there's nothing more helpful than Oxford English Dictionary online if you can get students to, to use it. But uh, that, that's like, they might be seniors by the time that, that comes about. So uh, let's uh, let's set this up then. Uh, well, actually, first, I want to query you on a very important word for your the way that you're teaching sourcing, and that's positionality. You have a lot of, this is that's not your own neologism. You have some other phrases, which I believe are original. Is that positionality? Is that you? Kind of no, 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 it's not. But there's some other phrases that are, which are very good and they're very precise. My wife, who's a phenomenologist, is like, yes, this is a phenomenological approach to reading a text. This is excellent. Um, uh, and she, I was saying, well, I don't like it. It's kind of jargon. No, no, no. She says, this is very precise. This is the way that you should be defining things. See, this historian, philosopher, it's very difficult sometimes. Um, so, uh, so let's define positionality first and some other ones that I might, that you might want to uh, share now as well. Okay, so positionality, which is Bruce Van Sledride, I got it from Bruce Van Sledride, I don't know whether he originated it, um, he expresses the place that every actor occupies in the world, and the view of the world that the actor has based on education, personal experience, temperament, personality, all of these things together. Culture and education are really powerful in shaping individuals, but we always have free will. And so there is always the possibility that we will break with the past. It's really important because when we talk about reading um, historical sources from the past, we're talking actually about two sets of positionalities. We're talking about our own positionality as a reader, which leads us to expect certain kinds of things when we read texts and the positionality of the person who produced the text, which 
um, arises out of particular understandings of their world and the purposes for which they have created the text or the image uh, because or the pot for that matter. When we talk about sources, we're not just talking about texts, although I primarily work with text. Yeah, I, I, I love that. I, I've used, I didn't have a f word for it. I was using something from, I think, a phenomenologist. Um, so I was reared on French authors, you know, mm -hmm. by the time I was done as a senior in college. I had, you know, Derek put it everything. And, you know, there's a period where I was, why believe anything at all? Or, you know, all everything. It's very hard to do historical research if you're a complete, you know. <laughs> I, I, I had to reveal that fact to some grad students these days, perhaps. But uh, so a phenomenologist who said it was like a tree in the field, in the middle of a field. And there are, there are like hundreds of us all in different places around the field. And as we walk from position to position, as to use your phrase, the tree looks different. Mm -hmm. Yet there's still a tree in the field. Mm -hmm. And this is actually, this is a kind of weird, that's almost a hard thing about reality to realize it's the same damn tree. Mm -hmm. um, it, in many ways, it shouldn't be uh, when we think about it because it looks so different or the seasons change or there's mm -hmm. lots of things that change about a tree. Lots of things change about us. You know, eyesight from, as you go from person to person. But that's, I think that's an idea of positionality the position of the tree and the position of the spectator. Mm -hmm. Oh, in, in your analogy, the tree's moving too. Exactly. That's where it gets a little complex. Because uh, we're dealing with people. We're not dealing with trees. So yeah. I always, as a medievalist, I always go to Thomas Aquinas, who says right. that that which is known is known according to the capacity of the knower. That's from our standpoint. But it's also true for the documents. Yeah. It's funny that Th Thomas Aquinas was there. Or, uh, to, uh, yeah. Yeah, he was he was he was really smart, actually. <laughs> really smart. You don't have to agree with him to realize he was really he had he said he said a clever thing from time to time. Um, so let's um, is there, are there any other phrases that you want to, uh, to to define at this point as well before you use them? No, I think I'll I'll do that as I go. Okay. Um, yeah. you suggested you'd like to me to hold off on too much context. Exactly. <laughs> So let's talk about this text. We began, it's about St. Vitalis of? Savigny, which is a little monastery. It was a little monastery in Normandy, um, in France. It was founded, we're not quite sure, around 1112. Um, and when Vitalis died, he was locally famous as a saint. Um, and then shortly after his death, his monastery became the, the founder of a number of other monasteries that became an order. Um, and then about three decades after that, it was absorbed into the Cistercian order. So one of the really big medieval monastic orders. Mm -hmm. um, and so it ceased, it, the monastery continued, but the order itself went out of business. Mm -hmm. So, so he actually he okay he founded his own order for a little while. That's that's a that's a distinction. That's a rare distinction. Well, right? he doesn't do it actually. Okay. The order is founded after he dies, huh. using his name and his example. Huh. Um, if he had actually founded the order, I, it's possible it might have survived. It's not clear. Huh. So let's talk. Let's talk about the real position. Well, no, let's talk about what. Um, before we get to the author and some other things about context and, and, and sort of actual geographical position, uh, let's talk about what, what would a, a service intelligent layperson 
um, the sort of lawyer, uh, the smart lawyer who's a, a history major and uh, was a history major um, that I talk about when I like am telling guests about listeners to this podcast. What would she notice as she was reading this podcast? What, what, what do you think would seem odd to her? In this saint's life? In this saint's life, yes. If she had read a lot of saint's life, not a whole lot. Which is an which interesting I think point. is one of the things that is really interesting about this process. Can we take something that is not extraordinary in its time and make it speak to us? The title episode of the Count uh, beating his wife and then receiving a penitential beating is the most striking incident in the entire saint's life. This is not St. Francis. I mean, St. Francis just kind of freaks people out from the moment he hits the ground running. There's nothing like him. But there are a lot of what um, some people have called ordinary saints. And, um, and, and we have tons of these lives of people who were locally notable. Um, and they worked some miracles. And they were important to their contemporaries. But we don't know their names because they just they weren't St. Francis um, or St. Dominic um, or St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Um, all of these people were extraordinary in their time. So these are ordinary saints. So, uh, so somebody who's reading it would say, so what? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What else? What else might they notice if they had if they hadn't read a saint's life, if they've been doing American history? Yeah, actually. <laughs> A bog standard American historian, even like you know, with a PhD and everything, and maybe three books published, they would be freaked out by this. They would find this strange. This is not a source that they're used to. What would they? What would they notice? Do you think? And I'm asking you this because you've obviously spent a lot of time positioning yourself in that and in in your students' shoes or anyone else's shoes. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, they're miracles, and so for modern people, that one's a real hard one. Yeah. Um, some of the miracles seem really, is that a miracle? Mm -hmm. Some of the other miracles seem, yeah, that can't be a miracle. My favorite one is, is one in which um, the Talus has blessed uh, the chalice. He's holding mass and a spider falls into it. And of course you can't stick your fingers into the blood of Christ and pull out a spider. You just gotta grit your teeth and drink it. And he does. And um, first of all, the lawyer might be surprised that they think spiders are so poisonous because, you know, we eat lots of bugs. And the second thing is that the author reports that later on the spider crawls out through his foot and people are going to be saying, wait a minute. You know, there's no hole in your foot to crawl out of one. Two, the spider would be dead after you ate it. Three, you know, is this the same spider? What's wrong with these people? Right. But they believe these kinds of things. And it's funny that like, it's like, that's like the headlight glare that uh, doesn't allow them to see the rest of the traffic. Mm -hmm. um, it just, it just is so dazzling, a miracle story like that, that everything else is like goes, they just don't see. It becomes, it becomes the, it's the overwhelming feature on the face that you don't notice the rest of the face. Yes. Yes. And, and of course that's, that's our positionality speaking. You know, we come from a world in which miracles are, um, quite scarce. Um, I, I went and looked at the miracles of the Marian Shrine at Lourdes, and, you know, they, the last, oh, 50 years, not a lot of stuff. Yeah. 
Um, they just authenticated a new one um, within the last five years, actually, while I was writing the book. So their website was down for a while. And then when it came up, there was another one. Um, and they're, they're really stretched out. We just don't believe in, we, we believe in the inexplicable, mm-hmm. but we're much less likely to believe in the miraculous. It's a, a very, it's a very elegant way of putting it. I have to think about that for a little bit. It's like the late, the late uh, sociologist, Peter Berger, uh, who mm-hmm. revised his own previous view on secularization. Uh, he observed that, um, Iceland is considered secular, but like 85% of the population believes in fairies and trolls living out in the landscape. Whatever you can say about them, whatever that is, it's not anti-religious or even mm-hmm. a-religious. It's just a different kind of religious religiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have a very different type of religiosity, different type of thinking about the miraculous. Um, well, some of them do and some of them don't. That's a very good point, isn't it? Yes. Go ahead. To explain that, please. So um, the life is peppered with references to disbelief. You may not believe this, but you know, but you should be a person of faith. So the author's anticipating there are going to be people who are going to who are going to stop. Which that's a very that's kind of also hard for us to see since um, a modern view of them that these people is that they're all a bunch of credulous boobs. Yes, yeah. and dumb. Dumb, yeah, dumb, dumb, incredulous. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Um, so let's. Um, if you were teaching this, when you have you taught this uh, text in class? No, but actually, I use this incident. I teach a course on microhistory, uh-huh. and I um, sometimes will give students things that they can work on, mm-hmm. and I have given students this the miracle of or the story of the saint beating the count as one of the potential uh, things that they can work with mm-hmm. um, so i ha- but i haven't taught the whole text huh. um so let's talk about then the the um well, let's talk about you make some interesting distinctions between sources so we just had mm-hmm. said earlier about how how the idea of primary sources is very difficult for for students to understand, I quickly began to think that I would just be happy if they stopped referring to any written thing as a novel. But oh, let's see, you know, yeah, I know it's it's. <laughs> I didn't know this was a problem until like sometime around 2010. It seems like every, everything, you know, everything is a is a novel. Um, and uh, but what what what's a primary source? What's a second? What you have a very nice distinctions. Could you lay lay those out? Okay, so uh, there are different kinds of primary sources too. Um, so I make a distinction between documentary sources and narrative sources um, because I use them to talk about the issue of bias and data. And so maybe I should define bias and data. This comes out of the sciences. Um, and it is merely the recognition that no matter how we gather data, our data is incomplete and leads us to conclusions that may be erroneous um, or are certainly only partial, okay? And when students hear the word bias, so here's another term of art, they think that somebody's lying. Yeah. And that's yeah. not what bias and data is about. It's about, you know, we only have data about, for the Middle Ages, really important people. We only have data about, we don't have as much data even about really important people. 
as we do in our own time. We don't have certain kinds of sources that would allow us to see what people are actually thinking, for instance, who are ordinary people. So, so all of that is gonna be an issue. Um, documentary sources, of course, are sources that are not made for us. They're made for people in the past to document whatever it is they feel need to be documented. So taxes or court cases or transfers of property. Um, and they are probably as accurate as, as we could hope them to be, but they don't tell us all, a whole lot of stuff necessarily. Um, sometimes in the narrative portions of charters, you'll, you'll see a story and then it's a narrative and you have to treat it as a narrative. Narrative sources are everything else, people telling a story. And they, um, they tell us only what they want to tell us. Like the and life of St. Vitalis. Right. But also what they think is important about St. Vitalis. Mm -hmm. Because one of the points that I make in the book is Vitalis was a hermit for something like, you know, 13 years. Uh, my author's not interested in that. So he doesn't say anything. Um, so we have to, and that's true, of course, for us as historians. We only tell people what we think they need to know. And my students often will assume that if a historian has not said something, it's because it doesn't exist. And as opposed to, I haven't said it because it, it's not necessary to what I am trying. I, I've noticed that in book reviewers too, I wanted, uh, which is, uh, one of the first dictums I had from a professor was when doing a book review, not to criticize something for what they didn't say. Mm -hmm. um, because, and, I, and I wish he had been more full about that. I think because precisely that thing, this is the story, this is the story we wanted to tell. And what we left out is very important to the, that the story that is still there as it yeah. were. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let's, but, yeah, go ahead. That was primary sources. Um, at one of my colleagues refers to ancient sources. This is actually an ancient source as opposed to a primary source because it's not written contemporary with the life of the saint. Um, it's about at least 50 years afterwards. And um, it's not written by somebody who knew him. So it's not a, an eyewitness account. Uh, then there are secondary sources, which are, of course, the sources that historians create. And we use those primary sources as constituent elements. My students often think that when I give them a primary source, I'm illustrating something we already know, as opposed to giving them something which may help them know something that nobody's really thought before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting, that's a really good point. Um, so let's talk then about, I think we've gotten to, uh, we finally have to stop beating around the bush. And you, you just pointed out, this is in fact, and I guess use the right term, an ancient source, mm -hmm. um, because the author did not know Vitalis. Mm -hmm. um, this is not as bad as someone writing a biography of Alexander the Great, which I think you know, which is mm -hmm. like 300 years, the, the earliest one is 300 years after Alexander lived or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but um, it's, from our perspective, it's kind of mad. This is another problem that, students always have and heck American historians have when they look, read a medieval history that this is written about Vitalis how many years after his death roughly so 50 50 yeah so it's kind of crazy someone's writing about Andrew Jackson the earliest source about Andrew Jackson is say 1900 I mean who does that you know mm -hmm. I mean, 
This mm-hmm. is, you know, or so on. The early source about George Washington is uh, right in the first 10 years before the Civil War. That's, uh, that's sort yeah. of crazy. That is um, crazy. But this is medieval. This, this is good, actually. This is by your, this is by medieval, by classical standards, this is like contemporaneous. This mm-hmm. is fantastic. Um, so who is the author? And let's then start to talk about positions, geographical positions, and the position of the talus and the position of the author. All right. So the author is a guy named Stephen of Fougere. Fougere is in southern Brittany. So if you can visualize the map of France, Brittany is the part that kind of sticks out in, uh, to the west in a kind of a horn. Um, his, but he's from Brittany right on the, the border with Normandy. Um, so he was, uh-huh. how far is he from Vitalis' monastery? Where he, where he... Very close. So he's a local boy. He's grown up, um, you know, in 40 kilometers, something like that, within of Savigny. Yeah. Um, he has gone to, uh, he's highly educated. He's probably gone to Paris for his education. Um, and he ends up as a clerk in the chancery of King Henry II of England. So he gets there around um, eleven fifty-seven or something now, like that. You say he's highly educated. Is he? Is he a noble? Is he like an Abelard? Abelard? Is he? Is he a noble family? Or do we know anything as about that? As, as far as we know, he isn't. As far as we know, his family are commoners. Now, obviously, they're not poor, because he wouldn't be able to get the education. We do have the occasional person whose upward mobility is made possible by just being enormously talented and being spotted, but that's unusual. Mm-hmm. So we, we don't know anything really about his life before he gets to, um, to England and, and joins the chancery. And so what you reminded me of is how exciting Henry II's chancery is <laughs> as, an, as an intellectual place. You wouldn't think that a group of lawyers, but then you run through the list of names. I was like, how did I forget that all these people were in the same place? Maybe not always at the same time, mm-hmm. but you know, a lot of them didn't know each other. It's a very exciting place. So could you explain the importance of Henry II, of his chancery? Okay. So so England, when he became king, England had just come out of a civil war. And he has to rebuild his government offices. The chancery, by the way, another term of art, this is in the glossary, is the writing office. It's the document center. They they issue all of the writs. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of them. We, they haven't all survived. But um, as a result of how much has to be produced, those clerks have to take a lot of initiative. They'll be told, oh, I need to have this message written for, you know, for this purpose, write it up. And, and then they're left to do that on their own. So um, in, enormously talented people, it's being rebuilt. Um, one of the big names, a name that I'm sure hearers know, um, if only because of our current political moment, Thomas Beckett was the chancellor of, um, of Henry's chancery and was his very close friend until they had their great falling out. So, we'll, we'll begin to uh, that perhaps, yes. yes. <laughs> so um, it, it's, a, it's a, a wonderful place. John of Salisbury, for the political philosophers who listen, uh, perhaps one mm-hmm. of the, the Number of th- probably the top three or five political philosophers of the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. one could say. Um, uh, Walter Mapp, 
the gossip columnist and, uh, (laughs) you know, and a fascinating writer. Um, So he's Henry collects these young, ambitious, driving intellectuals who are also Mm -hmm. lawyers, but are also writers. Mm -hmm. Walter Mapp, it's kind of funny to realize he was in the Chancery. He wrote he he wrote stories. He wrote down gossip. He wrote stuff. Well, he also told stories. So the thing to remember is there are a whole bunch of people floating around in this court and they're desperate for entertainment. Yes, yes. And they're also fiercely competitive with each other. In fact, I always think of Henry II's court as being like academia. You know, there are people (laughs) fighting for position and there are people who feel they're being unjustly passed over. And, you know, it's... it's, uh, there's a lot of backbiting. There's a lot of of making fun of people who are in the court because of their birth and not because of their education. Education is tremendously important in this court. Yeah, it, it is, uh, which is kind of funny. I mean, Henry's not the best educated person himself, but he he's like these some great leaders. Like I, in a weird way, I never compared Henry II and George Washington, but they respect mm-hmm. education in others and kind of wish they had more of it. But they really they like to hire or patronize young mm-hmm. men, driving ambitious young men with lots of education. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, His education is actually not bad. Okay. Um, you know, William of Conch was his, was his tutor. Well, that's so not mm-hmm. that's not bad. <laughs> I mean, but, he, but he's not an intellectual. No, no, <laughs> no. no he, he, he's a man of action. Lies do not become him. Uh, well, actually they did. But only <laughs> as an instrument of state. Um, what... Um, Another thing that, that, that strikes me about this, uh, it, it, and I should say for listeners, is that the old term was Angevin Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, this, is, this is a place where it's, you know, as one of the first things I remember from Western Civ number, uh, number three was it's easier to travel by water. And uh, there is no England. <laughs> there is this combined kingdom of England and, and half of France. Mm-hmm. It's united by close communications. And then people like Stephen, who travel from one side to the other, and who are creating, in many ways, the proto-modern state of mm-hmm. bureaucracy and and elite laws and minutes and records and all the rest of that sort of stuff. So this mm-hmm. is all this is this part of all this intellectual ferment. Oh yes, and, and and it's really it's really extraordinary um, how it's grouped around this family. Now there's also vernacular uh, mm-hmm. culture uh, culture in the languages that. Uh, people speak, which in this court is French. Yes. Um, and um, and Stephen wrote for that too. We have one work written in French by him, which is a uh, a treatise on uh, conduct, a kind of a sermon on how to how to live a life that will allow you to go to heaven, no matter where you are situated in um, in the world. Stephen, like a lot of people, the chancery is a stage in their career. And then having mm-hmm. been proven themselves, Henry then directs them to further advancement. So what happens to some, some become abbots, Stephen becomes a bishop. So where, where does he become mm-hmm. bishop? So he becomes a bishop um, in Rennes, um, which, which is, is in a, Brittany. It's which is important, an important bishopric. It is a very important bishopric because... Eventually, Henry's going to marry his son to the heiress of Brittany. Um, so he needs really good ally there. But before he becomes the, the Bishop of Wren, he goes to a, um, a 
collegiate church. So a collegiate church is a church that's served by a group of priests who all receive an income as part of their service. He goes to a collegiate church at Morton, um, which is in Normandy. So we're moving back and forth across the Norman Rachel border. What's important about Morton is that it has a Vitalis connection as well. Um, when Vitalis beats the count, it's the count of Morton that he's beating. Um, and it's it, as a member of that collegiate church, which Stephen then becomes the cantor of. So there's okay. another connection there. What does the it mean to be cantor? Cantor is the guy who organizes the um, the musical services of the okay. church. So it would seem that that's a step down from being in the chancery, but I, uh, apparently not. Uh, well, as as in part of his capacity as becoming the cantor, he also de facto becomes the king's chaplain. Oh, that's nice. And it's on this border area where things are very unsettled. So again, the king's putting him there because he trusts him. Mm -hmm. And because he's going to be a local agent, he actually seems to continue to travel with the king for the two years that he's the cantor. Yeah, being, being Henry II's chaplain is a full-time job, one would think. He sins to confess. So what's he like as bishop? Because I really, I, I have to say, I, I, maybe I'm, I'm you, uh, I, he's a very attractive character as you present him. He is. And, and perhaps this is the fault that we all have when we deal with people in the past. We sort of fall in love with them. But I suspect that from his writing um, and also from his conduct with Bishop, that he was really a good person to know. Um, he's very diligent as, as a bishop um, in a very caretaking way. A lot of the deeds that we have recorded about him as bishop is he's making peace between various quarreling uh, groups of people. Um, he, in his, it's called the Book of, of Conduct, the Livre des Manières, his vernacular text, he spends a lot of time praising people and talking about, you know, what good conduct is. Not just, you know, don't do these things, but you know, here's how you can live in the world and live honorably. Um, and there's a wonderful moment in the Book of Conduct where he talks about a woman who is faithful to her husband and advises him well and how she does not deserve to be to receive any punishment. So it, it may reflect the story. And then he goes and for the next um, four lines, he uses the word joy eight times to talk about marriage, that marriage should be a joyful union. He is a very attractive character. I came quite to like him. Yeah, the uh, the book of conduct, I was intrigued um, to see the way that it followed the liturgical structure of prayer for the various, it's a very interesting, I, I mean, I don't know how many others do that. It's like, I was like, oh, that's like a research idea. I need to look into others. Oh, wait, I don't do that anymore. But it's, <laughs> Well, that's a, there's a there's a research topic there. I think to see mm -hmm. what other ones do that because it's uh, the way that ethics is bound to liturgy. That's a very, to my mind, a very interesting and powerful idea mm -hmm. in, in, in his society. Um, let's talk. We've just been talking about one of the, I think, the first of the sourcing heuristics. Uh -huh. Could you explain the sourcing heuristic and why it's important and why that's like that's like the thing I tell 
I've told students, clutch this to your little chest. This is your, you always fall back on this. This is like, you know, this is like learning how to block and tackle. This is like, this is the basic move in reading something for historians. And, you know, I think lots of people can benefit. So what's from it? So what's the sourcing heuristic? Okay, well, let's start with heuristic, which is just a rule of thumb. Yep. And it's a group of questions that we ask about every text that, in fact, kids encounter this in, in grade school practically, the who, what, when, where, why questions. Mm -hmm. now, the problem with that is that it can be plug and chug. Yep. In sciences, plug and chug is when you just take this formula and you plug the numbers in, you don't actually really know what you're doing. You know, you just you, you put in the numbers, you get an answer. Students often think that once they've answered who, what, when, where, why, they've done all the work that's necessary. In fact, it's a tool. Mm -hmm. When we ask about when something is written, it's a tool that we want to use to understand it better. Um, I can give an example of this. Please do. It's a medieval example, uh, but not from my period. It has to do with Einhardt's life of Charlemagne. Oh, yes. Einhardt wrote a life of Charlemagne. Sometimes. Totally called the life of Charlemagne. Yeah, go on. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, uh, yes, indeed. Um, actually, I think. Vita Caroli, I think it is. <laughs> um, but it's written sometime between 817 and 836. Scholars do not know when. Um, I, when I have my students read it, I will often say, you know, you want to pick a date and then you want to explain this text based on that date. And they pick a date and then they ignore it. In 817, things are going pretty well for Louis the Pious, Charlemagne's son. Charlemagne, in everybody's memory, is this old guy who sat around and played with his concubines. You know, they've forgotten that when the, the Avars were captured, they brought back more cartloads of gold than anyone had ever seen. They'd forgotten that Charlemagne. They remember the old guy who was hanging around the palace. Uh, and, and um, jumping into the baths and eating roast, lots of roast meat. That's, indeed. Yeah. In the 820s, um, Louis the Pius is beginning to run into some trouble. And there have been a few rebellions against him. Um, Charlemagne's reputation is still not great in eight, the early 820s, but um, but Louis is now struggling. If we get up to 830, Louis is in deep doo-doo um, and um, his sons have rebelled against him. Um, and so how you read this text depends on how you're, you're seeing the day. Is it to remind everybody, yeah, Charlemagne was really great. Is it to remind everybody, look how much better Charlemagne handled all of these things than Louis is handling them? You know, that's going to depend on the date. So that's why the sourcing is important. Yeah. Um, in terms of the author who, we have to know what he knows. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't just assume what he may have encountered. And that's even more true, I think, for medieval people where... Information travels in much less predictable ways. So we can't ever say, unless somebody quotes something, you know, we know that Stephen of Fougere quotes John of Salisbury. So we know he's read it, but unless there's that direct quotation, we just, we don't know. Um, so we have to do an investigation. We have to say, so what did this guy know and when did he know it? Mm -hmm. um, um, we have to ask why something was written because things are written for purposes. 
let's uh, let's hang on there. Um, can we get to talk about the what? Um, because you make as you make abundantly clear, our idea of what we're reading mm-hmm. has to be conditioned by what they thought they were reading. Wow. And and yes. this uh, because we always are saying, oh, well, this is a saint's life. This is a this is hagiography. Well, that's not. I mean. You know, I don't think Stephen, when he was done, said, well, I've written a really nice, this is a very good part of the genre of hagiography, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he was not doing that. And um, uh, the people who first wrote novels weren't, you know, necessarily writing novels or inventing the novel. Uh, we mm-hmm. could go on with other things. So we have to understand then, we, we, this is very hard to, for people to understand um that what we might call it is not what they called it and how they saw it from their position. Re- other readers at the time saw it from their position. Could you right. develop that? Sure. So when people write these lives, there are a couple of things that they, they want to do with them. Um, one of them is if they want the person who they're celebrating to be officially recognized as a saint, they will need uh, probably by the end of the 12th century to have a biography of that person that they would take to Rome and have the papal um, curia uh, say yes or no. It's, it's, it, Stephen's writing at a period where it's all still, still a little bit in, less formal. It's going to get real formal in the next century. Yeah, so this is like saints can be, saints are always... Yeah, always local people first, or local They're saints first. I mean, first. and in a way, you can see this even today in a formal era. I mean, people mm-hmm. are venerating a saint now, prior to the the curious saying, "Oh yes, he's a saint," and they're they're mm-hmm. venerating. They're expecting a miracle from this person before the curia has done their thing or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And actually, the central church doesn't particularly care as long as the person is orthodox in life. Um, That becomes an issue. So one of my uh, former students, Janine Peterson, has just written a wonderful book about saints who kind of cause problems because they're not so orthodox, maybe. That's a great Uh, book. (laughs) To deal with them. But yeah, the Stardust local people, um, there may then be a campaign to get them more formally recognized. So that's one purpose. But another purpose is when you're thinking of somebody as a saint, a local saint, say you're a monastery like Savigny, um, you you want to be able to commemorate that person. So you want a biography that you can read aloud perhaps on the anniversary of that person's death. The other thing about monasteries is you're not supposed to talk during meals. Somebody's supposed to be reading aloud to you. And you need lots and lots of reading material to sort of keep people um, act, actively engaged. And so saints' lives often um, fill that purpose. But I also think that they fill the purpose that uh, novels fill for us often. You know, people like hearing these stories. You know, it's like, Listening to, um, you know, Black Panther, to watching a Black Panther movie. Sure. You know, it's exciting. Yeah, I mean, some of them could be, I mean, the, what Thomas of Charles' Life of St. Francis is oh, exciting. It I is. mean, it's brilliant. And I mean, and if we're excited about comic book heroes on, on the movies, which when you stop to think about it is a weird thing, mm-hmm. um, why shouldn't they be excited with people they believe that actually lived and they believe did amazing things? Mm-hmm. You 
and, and new stories crop up, of course, all the time. My students with St. Francis always ask about the Wolf of Gubbio right. and why it doesn't appear in any of the images I show them. And the answer is because it's not one of the original stories. That's why. Yeah, yeah. But, but, uh, but someone in Gubbio said, hey, let me tell you a story about what happened here. Indeed. Pretty, pretty cool thing. So, um, so that's, that's, that's more of the what. Um, let's talk about the when of this text. When is it written? Ah, the when is fun. Uh-huh. Because, because here, because this, this is where, as a historian, I can, um, my really original, most original point, I think, which is uh, when I saw this story and I saw the story about the count being beaten, I thought, oh man, I wonder when this was written. Why don't, why don't we, why don't actually, I've, I've got the text here. Okay. Uh, can I, uh, can I read it uh, sure. for you? Um, let me pull it up. So it's it's not that long. Nope. So I will uh, read it. This is mm-hmm. from uh, Stephen Fouget, this Life of St. Vitalis. Mm-hmm. But we should not pass a matter over in silence that he told one of his disciples because of that man's authority. One time he found the countess weeping and troubled by great sobbing and sorrow. He quickly asked the reason for her sorrow and learned from her own mouth that the count did not respect her and had presumed to beat her. The venerable man was moved by her pain and said that he was angry that the Count had presumed to do such things to her and that the bond between himself and the Count would have to be broken unless the Count agreed to refrain from visiting such injuries upon the lady. So then it happened that Vitalis left Mortain and did not let the Count know about his departure. But when it was announced to the Count, the Count followed him without delay, and once the Count had given him a pledge that he would make satisfaction for his misdeed, the Count got him to return, but the reason he left remained hidden, and only those two knew it. When they returned and secretly entered the chapel, the Count, who begged for compassion, began to implore the venerable man not to hesitate to whip him as much as he wished. The Prince took off his clothes and stood nude before the reverend man, who stood over him and struck him with bitter blows. But as the Prince humbly begged Vitalis to have mercy on him, the venerable man chastised him as much as he wanted to with the descending switches. Oh, he was a man endowed with the greatest liberty. Oh, he was a man outstanding for his great authority. The apostolic statement which says, where the Spirit of God is, there is liberty, is really true. He was truly free, this man to whom the countess did not fear to disclose her pain, at, at whose hands the count himself did not blush to humbly submit himself to be beaten. So it's it's this wonderful passage. And what I thought about was I thought about Stephen in Henry II's Chancery. Mm-hmm. Because in 1174, Henry had to do penance for the murder of Thomas Becket. Also in, in the Chancery. This is all the all Chancery. Chancery. It's all connected. Yes. It's all connected. Um, and he went to Canterbury. He got off his horse before he got to the cathedral and walked barefoot to the cathedral. He fasted during the night. And then the next morning, he submitted himself to being beaten by the monks of Canterbury. So I thought, wow, this is really an interesting parallel. What is going on here? And in fact, I realized something which 
I had not, I sort of knew, but I had not really paid attention to, and nobody else had either, which is that Henry was the Count of Mortain also. <laughs> and so, um, and S Stephen was very close to him. We know that Stephen was part of the negotiations about the penance that Henry was supposed to do. Um, and um, he must have been greatly troubled by this. All of Henry's close associates were. Um, uh, so that really started me thinking about, so when was this written? And I think it must have, at least this portion of it, and probably the whole of the life, had to have been written after Henry does his penance. Um, so the point, one of the points that I make in the, in the book and this is, I think, an important one, is that if we did not have this story in this saint's life, it would still function really quite well as a life of Vitalis. Mm -hmm. This story speaks to Stephen's concerns and to Stephen's time. It doesn't speak to 1122. It speaks to 1174. And that, of course, raises the question about whether this happened. <laughs> We're not supposed to talk about that. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, go on. And we don't know. No. I mean, it's it's interesting that it's that he was a priest in Mortain. You know, at the mm -hmm. same time, he's. It's interesting. I mean, there's. It, it, yeah. It's. It's certainly possible that something that he's built this out of something. Um, that he was told. So in the beginning of that passage, it talks about um, the disciple having a great deal of authority in telling the story. So a lot of sources for this are oral, people passing stories down. Stephen never met, uh, never met Vitalis. Um, it is unlikely that there are very many people at Savigny who had met Italis in life, they'd have to have been very old. So we're talking about the grand disciples of, of Italis, people who arrived at the monastery, probably just after Italis's death, they're told lots of stories. Storytelling is really important to this culture and it really presents problems for us as medievalists because so much is more is oral yep. and we don't have access to it. And it makes it even worse when we think about, you know, things that how good oral traditions actually can be in in telling stories as people discovered from the 1920s forward, you know, with the, what's his name, who did the, the work in Serbia, you know. Carrie and Lord, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And so, so that, so that uh, uh, you know, even in the late 19th century, they might have d dismissed some things like this completely as, you know, no one could possibly remember. But now we know people can tell certain structures of stories can pass on rather well. Yeah. And so, yeah, this is really a problem. So but the other thing, of course, we know, as I mentioned, the spider miracle, it crops up in a number of different saints' lives right around this time. Mm -hmm. um, and it does cultural work. So it, the, what it does is it reinforces teachings that the church is trying to teach. And the one they're trying to teach is transubstantiation, mm -hmm. yeah. the belief that the blood, um, that the Blood, that the wine and the chalice turns into the blood of Christ and that the communion bread turns into the flesh of Christ. And there are a number of miracles that occur as a result of that. Yeah. But all of these miracles are intended to reinforce I, And also, it, it, another thing is, I wish I had five bucks for every guy I've read about who 
almost got poisoned with a chalice. Of course, it happens to Abelard, right? Uh, he was supposedly was poisoned. The poisoning in monasteries is is you know, Brother Cadfail had a lot of work to do. That's why I'm saying this is it's regrettably it's regrettably common. It's amazingly common based on our sources. You have to wonder if this is they're actually exaggerating or or what's going on here. They're imitating Saint Benedict. Yeah, Benedict is the first one to be to be have an attempt to poison mm -hmm. him. Mm -hmm. the yeah, there's a story about St. Patrick, which is just like a direct imitation of the uh, of Benedict, mm -hmm. right? The, the poison freezes or becomes a, you know, a pebble or whatever, something like mm -hmm. that. I think in Benedict's case, the, the goblet um, explodes, basically. <laughs> I missed that one. Um, so, um, can we... So, what, 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 else, what, what else have I missed? What, what else should we talk about in terms of sourcing that that you wish that I had uh, asked you about or that we should have brought up? Um, I think there's not so much about sourcing as, as the immense difficulty of this project that we're part of. Mm -hmm. um, and that takes me to... Um, an article by Bruce Van Sledwright where he talks about how we as historians often feel that we're um, that we're in touch with or we understand the past and we cannot explain how we do it. <laughs> There's no sort of theoretical underpinning for our sense that we have made an authentic contact with the past. So one of the things I think we have to do, and this is also difficult for students and is sometimes difficult for us, is, is to recognize how provisional our understanding of the past is. Lendl Calder talks about this as humility in the face of the things that you don't know. Um, and um, so that's really what I, I would like I guess where I would like to go with that, perhaps where um, where I'd like to end with this, unless you have other things you want to talk well, about. Well, I want you, I want to, I want to close with you reading, reading yourself, um, but um, out loud. But uh, but yeah, I think it's a beautiful place to end. I don't think we can say that too often. I, 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 that will be at least one month. It will be devoted to humility. <laughs> um, it's uh, intellectual humility is. Uh, it, it, grad school doesn't do a very good job of teaching you that. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a lot of reasons not to ever act humble in front of your peers, unfortunately. Um, but it is, um, it seems to me, um, absolutely essential to hold these, we, we are holding these things very gently in our hands. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, we mustn't crush them by squeezing them too hard. And mm -hmm. uh, our knowledge is, I mean, even the best, the most, uh, the hardest core experimental physicist would uh, say that her knowledge is provisional. Mm -hmm. That seems to me. If we can teach students that, if we can make it clearer to the public that that's what history is, I think there will be less misunderstanding of um, how we think about things and why we change what we think. Mm -hmm. um, and some of it, of course, is about is goes back to positionality. The questions we ask, we ask different questions than people asked fifty years ago. Yeah, 
And and that's a good thing. Yeah, it's, it's not a bug, it's a feature, as they say. That's right. And we, yeah, um, you know, people had very, when the, I'm, I was thinking, um, you're referring to the, the Acta Sanctorum, the, you know, mm-hmm. the massive, I I remember as a, as a, as a undergraduate contemplating like the MGH and the uh, Acta Sanctorum and thinking, my God, these are like monuments of, of, of scholarship, um, which they are. I mean, they're, they're, they are immense works of art and scholarship really. Um, and it's, I, I today, how long would it take to put together the MGH? I shudder to think. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, um, and, um, That was all done because of many ways of German nationalism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's done the, the driving the gas in the tank to put together the Monumentum Germanae Historiae, uh, which extends a lot to Italy, uh, mm-hmm. just suspiciously enough for everyone, is is German na- nationalism of the Second Reich. And, mm-hmm. uh, it's put together because of preoccupation very different from our own, and which mm-hmm. are actually in Germany almost legally forbidden. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and you have to realize that, that but it's still a wonderful act of scholarship. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's we have different passions drive us forward. Well, in the origins of the Act of Sanctorum, the deeds of the saints, is the desire to maintain a Catholic Europe by purging um, saints' lives of some of their dodginess by studying saints' lives on a scientific basis. Um, and of course, the people who, the uh, Bollandist Society, which, which put, began putting that out in the 17th century, is still around, um, still working on the lives of the saints, but working on them to different ends and for very different purposes. And I get down on my knees and I, you know, Thank the good Lord every night for what the antiquarians did. Yeah, absolutely. And it, there's, I, as what I learned from being around medievalists is I still think that one of the greatest acts any humanist can do is edit a text. Um, because that is, without it, there is no, there is no history. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Really, this is the basic essential building block of historical study is, is approaching a text, asking the who, what, where, why, and when, and then trying to put it in in order, a provisional order <laughs> for for the future, for, mm-hmm. for future scholars. Mm-hmm. Um, let's uh, finish with you. Um, I want to talk very briefly about um, the the structure. Why did you? The, uh, again, you, you talked about how you came up with the idea and how uh, Toronto uh, worked with you on it. But I, I'm curious about the sort of the the way that you went from chapter one to the end. How did you How did you come up with that structure? I'm also curious how long it took you to put this together. I can't, I can't figure out if it was painstaking work or you wrote it in like a burst of joy. Both. <laughs> um, and and um, it was the most fun. It, it, it feels like I have had in writing just about anything <laughs> in my entire scholarly life, partly because I was trying not to write like an academic. I mean, you can't help it to a certain extent. But you, but every time you do, then you explain what you've done. That's like you go back and say, here's what I, here's what I mean by that. Or something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. But you, you yeah. convey so much enthusiasm in the book. 
um, and enjoy. It's in happy. It's wonderful for that reason. Oh. I've been, I've this is it's a very unusual book because of that. I had that feeling. I just was chuckling at times, not because of the jokes, but just because of the passion. I think. Well, my daughter laughed uh, out loud when I said somebody, you know, not to accept somebody's story with the cast shade on on the reputation of the person who offered it. She laughed out loud. Yeah. You know, some of that was, oh, look at my old mother, you know, <laughs> that <be> cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, could you finish? Um, there's a, a passage which I very much liked. Um, it spans uh, beginning on page 114, which I think. Um, I think it's a nice place to end if you could read that. Okay. Well, I'll have to call it up, of course. So, yeah. um, but uh, it is not too far. I did print out a few things, but uh, oh, come on. 114, you said? Mm -hmm. right. um, so, where would you like me to start? That, uh, um, the paragraph that spans 114 to 115. That, okay. Um, the purpose was also to walk you, the reader, through an analytic approach to working with these sources, utilizing a set of questions, highlighting the way in which I draw on the work of other historians, and also taking a particular theoretical stance. As Diana Jeter has pointed out, the theories that historians apply to their material are defined largely by the questions they ask and the suppositions they make. The theoretical stance is this. The medieval people were neither stupid nor more credulous than we are, even if they sometimes believed things that seem odd to us, just as what we believe would have seemed odd to them. That the literature they created and consumed can be used for us by, for purposes other than the original ones, if we interrogate that literature systematically and set it in its context. That to do so well, we need to be aware of how we ourselves are positioned and how the sources we draw on are positioned. That in doing so, we enter into a dialogue with the work of other scholars. And that all these things are part and parcel of the disciplinary thought of history. Producing history is, in other words, a highly intellectual activity. My guest today has been Leah Shopko. She's professor of history at Indiana University and author of The Saint and the Count, now available by the time this podcast drops from the University of Toronto Press at all online and physical booksellers, I should hope. Leah, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you for asking me. It's been a lot of fun. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.